It's good to see y'all. Like I said, it is always a joy for me to come and be able to bring this morning's message. So when I was growing up and I was getting to know my wife, Becca, and her family, um, I would often get invited over for like a movie night, okay? Now, when I had movie night at my house, I grew up with just, you know, me and myself, my brother, and so you can imagine our movie nights looked a little different, right? Just two guys, three guys in a house, and we would have, you know, an action flick or maybe a comedy. Um, But when I would go over to Becca's house, Becca had three older sisters, and so I would walk in on something like the six-hour Colin Firth Pride and Prejudice, Interesting. So I come in and I sit down on what is no doubt an enormously long dinner scene, and a certain young man makes a pass across the room and makes eye contact with a certain young lady. And then usually it's about that time that the girls start bouncing up and down, talking about, oh my gosh, did you see how much passion and how much information was all packed into that one glance? I am unconvinced. Okay, because for a movie with no explosions, no fight scenes, no gun battles, and no high-speed chases, the fact that I am reduced to looking at the subtle nuances of facial expressions across a dinner table leaves me feeling underwhelmed. Okay? And so at this, they say, oh, Rob, you just don't understand. Okay, you don't understand because this girl has just gone through a breakup or a breakup and then her, her dad's really disappointed in her and she's feeling weak and vulnerable. And this guy, he just inherited a fortune from his aunt and now he gets to do what he wants to do. And so whenever they lock eyes, it's like, boom, fireworks and there's all this significance, right? So apparently there's a backstory that I missed somewhere along the way, right? And so what's the solution? Well, I've got to go back and I've got to watch from the beginning. Six hours from the beginning, right? To go through that, which I'm just thrilled to do. Now, that backstory is what's going to make those moments make sense, right? The backstory is what holds a plot line together. Without those, everything feels disjointed, awkward, maybe even boring, okay? Because apparently there was a lot more information packed into this dinner scene than I gave it credit for. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about the backstory to the wonderful message that Pastor Mark gave last week when he preached on Matthew chapter 16, the Caesarea Philippi Confession. It's where Jesus pulled the trigger on the idea of the church. But today we're going to take a step back and we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5 and we're going to see how Jesus paved the road for that church. And he did that by preaching a sermon. And it's a sermon that literally turned his hearer's worlds upside down. Today, we're going to talk about the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to look at that through the lens of three main questions. First, we're going to see who is it exactly that is giving this sermon. Then we're going to look at what exactly is he saying. And then lastly, we're going to say, why is Jesus telling it to us like this? What is he doing inside of us? Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you. And we pray that your word come alive before us this morning, that the characters and the moments will literally jump off the page and into our hearts, that we might be changed by your everlasting word. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's look at our first question. Our first question is, who is giving this sermon? Now, in this case, the traditional Sunday school answer actually plays. So you can say Jesus. Who is giving this sermon? Jesus, that's right, yes, candy for everyone, right? (laughs) Now, 
Actually, yes, the answer is Jesus, but it goes a lot deeper than that. You see, because every gospel author has a certain picture of Jesus that they're putting forward in their story. It's what makes their moments hit. It's what keeps their plot line together. So when Jesus delivers a sermon on the mount, this is not just Jesus turning around and tweeting out his thoughts to the ancient world. Okay? This is a very particular presentation of Jesus. And what I want to do is I want to take a second and I want to see the threads that Matthew is pulling together to present Jesus to us. The first thing we notice is that Matthew presents Jesus as king. Okay? Now, and just to stop at the word king would be to fall way short. Okay? Because Matthew is not just saying king. He's saying the king. The promised Messiah. Look with me at how Matthew opens up the very gospel of Matthew. Look at Matthew chapter 1 verse 1. In it we read, This is a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, I know that seems like a skip-over-y kind of verse, right? And let's face it, a lot of Matthew chapter 1 is skip-over-y. Why? Because it's a genealogy, right? We don't, it's not really page-turning material. I mean, I mean, it is, but it's more like the other kind of page-turning material. But Matthew has dropped us three big pieces of information in his first sentence of the gospel. And I'll, let me cover them real quick in reverse order. It says, son of Abraham. Now, that should be raising flags inside your mind because God gave Abraham a specific set of promises. Okay? Land, seed, and blessing. Most importantly, this blessing that through Abraham, the entire world is going to be blessed. Okay? Then he says he's the son of David. Now, God gave David another set of promises. Most important being that the throne of David will be established forever. That one will come after David from his line and his house, and God will set up his kingdom, and that kingdom will have no end. It will go on forever and ever and ever. Okay? And then lastly, he says, this is the genealogy of who? Jesus Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Okay? Christ is Jesus' title. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Christos. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus, the anointed one. So he wasn't just saying that this is a king. He's saying this is the king, the promised Messiah, who would sit on David's throne forever, who would bless the whole world as a son of Abraham. He goes out of his way to show that Jesus is not just a king. He is the king. Second way that he presents Jesus, Matthew presents Jesus as Jesus the prophet. Now, the Sermon on the Mount takes place in chapter 5. But would it surprise you to know that Matthew's chapter 3 and 4 center largely on John the Baptist? Okay? John the Baptist was a great prophet. He was the first prophet in over 400 years. He was, had a huge following. He was taking on the spiritual elite. He was baptizing in the name of repentance. He was preaching the kingdom of God is right here. It's right here. It's almost here. Just wait. So there was a lot of built-up anticipation and excitement over what this prophet was going to say and do. And what does this prophet say? Look with me in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. Matthew 3, 11 says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one coming after me is more powerful than I am. I am not even worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then Jesus enters stage right. The greater than I, the greater than John the Baptist. Now, you know what happens is that Jesus gets baptized and he goes off into the wilderness to be tempted 40 days. And then he comes back and he learns that John the Baptist has been arrested. 
his ministry is stopped cold. And everywhere that, that phrase is kind of ringing in his ear, the one that's coming after me, let's batter up. John's in prison. It's time to go. For those of you who've watched the series, The Chosen, you know there's that beautiful scene at the wedding of Cana. It's where Jesus has had all these episodes and creating and getting his followers. And then there's this wedding scene to where he has the choice to perform the miracle to turn the water into wine. And he goes into this quiet room and he looks up to his father and he's really saying, am I ready? Are we ready to do this? Because once I perform this first miracle, it's like that momentum is going to carry me all the way to the cross. There's no turning back once I do that. So he looks up and he says, Father, I'm ready. And he performs the miracle. It's this, the one who is coming after me. Batter up. And Jesus steps up to the plate and begins performing miracles. Look with me in Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. Okay? Matthew 4, verse 12 says, Now when Jesus heard that John had been imprisoned, he went into Galilee. Now skip with me to verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach this message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now down to verse 23, Jesus went all throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and sickness among the people. And so a report about him spread throughout Syria. People brought to him all who suffered from various illnesses and afflictions, those who had seizures and paralytics, those possessed by demons, and he healed them. And large crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and even beyond the Jordan River. And so here we have a prophet going into a larger culture, not Egypt, but Israel. And then with signs and wonders and miracles, not plagues, but wonders, he leads these people out of that culture. And then in the next verses, he leads them through the wilderness and takes them to the holy mountain, where he goes up the mountain, turns, and reveals the law of God to his chosen people. Does that sound like anyone else we know? Matthew is painting a parallel picture of the Exodus. That Jesus is not just a prophet that is greater than John the Baptist. Jesus is a new Moses. And this rabbit hole actually goes a lot deeper than we're we're covering this morning. He structures the whole book of Matthew like the Torah. Jesus is the new Moses, the quintessential prophet. Okay, The greater than John the Baptist. Jesus is a prophet among prophets. And so not only is Jesus presented as a king and a superior prophet, he's also presented as Jesus, our Emmanuel. Let's look at Matthew chapter 1 now, verses 21 to 23. It's a Christmas passage. We're very familiar with this passage, but let's look at this real quick. It says, she will give birth to a son. This is where Gabriel is talking to Joseph. Um, and she will, you will give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And this all happened so that which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled. Look, the virgin will conceive and will give to him, give a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, I know Emmanuel can sound a bit churchy, but this is the big idea. We use this passage in Matthew at Christmas time a lot. Why? Because it emphasizes the supernatural conditions of his birth. Okay? We have angelic beings coming and visiting Joseph and Mary in dreams. We have the star of Bethlehem appearing in the sky. We have magi, men from strange and other cultures, coming over because they have seen the stars and signs in the heavens that say the King of Kings is born. This is supernatural stuff. Okay? And it's not just his birth. 
okay? In the next chapter, Jesus has a supernatural baptism to where the voice of the Father comes down and says, this is my only son in whom I am pleased. Not only does he have a baptism, he goes, and with that passage we just read, he goes through and he starts healing, and there's miracles and exorcisms and all these things. It's over and over, Matthew is emphasizing that the supernatural and Jesus are walking hand in hand. This is not just a prophet or a king. Heaven has pierced the veil and come down and touched earth. This is not just a prophet or a king. This is God himself walking among us. Now, why would I take all this time to set us up like this? Why would Matthew present in such detail this prophet and king and God with us? So let me ask us a question this morning. Who would you listen to? Who would you listen to? And I'm not talking about, um, you know, music artists or, you know, radio talk show hosts and things like that. But I'm saying who has the authority to speak to you and to really tell you what's what? Because Matthew laid out Jesus as a king, the highest humanly authority. Okay, human to human, doesn't get higher than a king. And we can't even really relate to a king because we're like Americans, right? You know. And then he says, okay, that doesn't work for you. How about a prophet? How about one that ascends the mountain and hears the words of God directly and then passes that to you? Would you take that? Would you listen to that? No? Well, how about this? What if God himself had something to say to you? And he turned around and he spoke. Would you listen then? That's the question that Matthew is pairing us up with. So when we see Jesus, who is presented as the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God, and he walks up the mountain with his followers in tow, he walks up the mountain and turns around and speaks the law of God. He is doing so with, a, with an authority that no human being before or since has ever or will ever, ever have. Jesus is speaking with the authority of God himself. And he opens the Sermon on the Mount with these words. I want to invite you to just let the full force of the text just wash over you as Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. And blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Wow, right? It's pretty crazy. So at this point, I want to pivot to our second question, which is, what? Like, huh? Really? Like Matthew has spent all this time building us up to this pinnacle moment where Jesus begins to speak and he comes out with, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. I mean, it sounds really good. It's, it's easy on the ears, but it's really hard on the mind, right? What is Jesus trying to say? What is he telling his followers? And I think that what he tells his followers is, sweeps over them like a breath of fresh air. 
It is totally new and refreshing to them because what it is saying to them is this, is that God's kingdom is fundamentally different. And I don't just mean on the surface. It doesn't just involve a tweak to our thinking here and there to where you got the system running. No, it's an entirely new system right down to its DNA. Jesus is going around and he's taking the values of our society and he's turning them upside down one by one. For those of you who are familiar with the Netflix series Stranger Things, what Jesus is actually saying here, he says, you don't realize it because this is all you've ever known. But you are actually living in the upside down. You are living in a dimension that is contorted and perverted and twisted and decaying and evil. Down to its very core. But the kingdom of God is coming. And I'm going to turn the world right side The kingdom of God is fundamentally different. Do you know the picture that the Bible uses to describe, speaking of the upside down, the pictures that the Bible uses to describe our kingdoms, our empires? They're mutants, bloodthirsty monsters. They're beasts. You know, I mean, think back to Daniel chapter 7. The four beasts that come out of the sea, okay, and they got four heads and four wings and they got bones in their teeth and they're like, devour much flesh. You know, you know what those are? Those are kingdoms. Those are empires. Each one of them have touting their view of utopia, that this is the way the world ought to be, each one executing their view of society. But you know what's common about all of them? They all come out as monsters. Big, small, it doesn't matter. Because they were made by fallen people. And they are run by fallen people. And it doesn't even just get to, to the kingdoms. It goes down to the systems that we create. And this is, just, this is just what it means to be a fallen human, folks, is the systems that we create and the ways we choose to relate to one another are like that. Because we create systems that, that hide our weaknesses naturally. I don't want to go put my weaknesses out front and center. Okay? We create systems that hide our weaknesses, that keep us from having to own up to how we truly operate. And if, I know that sounds kind of heady and abstract, but let me just bring it home. That was the year 2020 for me, where God revealed that that same dynamic, that broken dynamic, was alive and well and hard at work, even within my own marriage. The person that I love most in this world, that those dynamics had infiltrated that relationship because I didn't want to face up to how I was really operating. We create systems that keep our weaknesses in the background. And when we can't do that, we bring them forward and try to repackage them as our strength, okay? Those are the kind of systems that we create, and that's just what it means to be human. When Jesus is coming along, he's saying that my kingdom will have none of those flaws because my kingdom is made by God and not made by man. So all of those impurities, all of those distortions, you can leave it all behind because my kingdom is gonna be brand new. You don't need to bring any of that with you. So if we could give a voice to this culture, 21st century America, if our culture could stand up on a mountain and give its sermon on the mount, what sort of things would it say? Okay? So would our culture say, blessed are the poor in spirit? Blessed are those who are abandoned, forsaken, the forgotten, the broken, the oppressed? Would our culture say that? No. Our culture would say, blessed are the rich and the powerful in money and power and influence, for they will always have the means to get what they want. 
Would our culture really say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness? Those who feel a deep visceral reaction, whose goal it is every day to find the righteous way in what they do and say and think. No. Our culture would say, blessed are the bold who boldly go and make their own way and throw off the shackles of mindless traditions for those are the leaders of our society. We don't say things like that. Would our culture say blessed are those who mourn? Blessed are those who feel the deep brokenness and evil of our world and who are not afraid to stare reality dead in the eye. Those who will not distract themselves or numb themselves to stupefaction. No. We say, blessed are those who glamorize. Blessed are those who binge. Blessed are those who gloss over the hurts of this world, for they shall never feel pain. Do we say, blessed are the peacemakers? Blessed are those who bravely walk into conflict and stand between two opposing parties, being willing to take bullets from both sides to give themselves in the name of bringing together people in peace. No. We say blessed are those who are on the right side of history, for they never need to be ashamed of their convictions, for peace is a pipe dream. Victory is what's important. Those are the sort of things that our culture says. That would be our culture's Sermon on the Mount. So if we think that coming to Jesus only requires a few tweaks to the system, a couple just inject some positive moralism here and there, we will always find ourselves out of sync with the teachings of our Savior because the kingdom of God is not just a tweak to this system. It is fundamentally different. Another thing that Jesus is showing this audience with this is that the law of God goes deeper. It goes deeper than just action because when the law of God takes root in a person's life, it affects everything about them. It affects their inner life. You see, at this point, Israel had had the law for somewhere around 1,200 years, okay? And Jesus was, tell, was showing them that by this time, the law should have grown roots deep into your society. It should grow roots deep into your mind, and it should affect every part of your life. That's why he goes to murder, okay? That's why he goes to murder. He'll say, okay, let's take murder, for instance. Yes, the law says do not murder, but do you know where murder really starts? It starts in your heart. It starts with hate and anger towards your brother. And then he moves to adultery. He's like, is adultery wrong? Yes. But you know where adultery starts? It starts in lust. It starts with that desire to have, nay, to take what is not rightfully yours. He says, the law is talking about actions, but the law is actually pointed at your heart. And this is what it means to sink deeper into the law. And Jesus knew this would be controversial. Okay, He knew right out of the gates. That's why he says in Matthew 5, 17, he says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. No, no, no. I haven't come to abolish these things. I've come to fulfill them. He's saying this is what it looks like when you embody the law down to its core. For it moves from your head to your heart, out to your hands. You know, that's why in the Old Testament, when um, a new king was installed, God would tell them to write out their own copy of the law. 
Okay? You were supposed to write it out for yourself, and that way it was in your mind, it was in your mouth, it was in your hands, and so it was supposed to control the flow of how you ruled because the law of God was in you through and through. Does that make sense? God wanted every king to write the law down for themselves so that they would operate sitting comfortably inside the law of God. So, let's turn to our third question, why? Why is Jesus saying it like this to us? What is he doing? And I think the first thing Jesus is doing with this passage is he is totally changing our understanding of the word blessed. Okay? Now, he's talking to the poor in spirit and to the meek and to the lowly, right? And that's these people in front of him. He's gone throughout healing and exercising demons and things like that. And so he's talking to the meek of the earth. Those are those people. They have not gotten a fair shake in life, okay? They're, in our minds, it would be more like a rabble than the cream of the crop. And he, what he does, Jesus goes to them, and he takes their understanding of the word blessing and totally shifts it, saying that blessing is not something that you hold in your hand. Rather, blessing is God himself holding your hand as you walk through this life's circumstances, The presence of God is the blessing. That is the blessed life. In fact, you can go back and you can substitute the word God is with every time you see the word blessed. So God is with those who are poor in spirit. God is with those who mourn. God is with those who hunger and thirst after God's righteousness. God is with the peacemakers. God is with the meek and the merciful. When God is with you, you have everything you need. And so the word blessed starts to turn on its heel, going from something less that you hold in your hand and more like a pathway, a pathway where you kind of stay between the lines, staying inside the presence of God as a, as a pathway, a deep and rich pathway where we find the presence of God buried within his law and buried within his ways. Now, when I first started going to Colorado with Becca and her family, um, there would be days where we just go climb that mountain. Okay, we come outside, and there's a mountain. Climb it. And, you know, I took ninth grade geometry, so I'm like, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. So here's me, here's my peak, and try to find the straight line that's least likely to get me killed. Right? Okay, there's my path. And so you start trudging up this mountain, and you realize, this is ridiculous. <laughs> it's really hard to go up a mountain like this. You can't just go straight up a mountain. And so then you look, at, you look at the ground and you start to see this pattern of zigzags, little game trails that go. And you're like, that's genius. Okay. And so my knees are in agreement. We're like, yes, this is better. And so I start going on this way. And there was this comfort, this comfort that even things that are the deer and the animals that knew this mountain a whole lot better than I did, they knew the best ways up. They knew the shortcuts. They knew how to get up the mountain. And so it became this sense of security in going up a path, a trail. It wasn't just a straight line. You know, every morning I walk my kids to school, and when we round this certain corner, I pray over their days. And one of the things I pray every day is that God will show them deeper paths throughout their days. Deeper paths in their conversations, deeper paths in their thoughts, in their words, and in their actions. Because, And we call it, in our family, we call it the night's path, like, K-N-I-G-H-T, the night's path, because it's really hard. 
right? It's hard to walk the way of a knight to where a knight's joy and pleasure and duty and honor is to find the deeper paths, the paths of God, and to walk in those. And so I'm always encouraging them to find those. It's like little on-ramps throughout your day, little conversations that you have, thought patterns to where you can go down. And when you go down into those paths, you realize that those paths are worn by Jesus himself. He wore those paths down. And so when we are walking those paths, we are walking with him. Now, the book of Psalms opens up in the exact same way. You know, I'm a, I'm a worship pastor. I love the Psalms. And the Psalter opens up with Psalm 1 in this way. It contrasts the way of the godly and the way of the wicked. Or the knight's path and the fool's path. And he opens up with that same word, blessed. That's what that's trying to do, to show us the ultimate way of life, the blessed way of life. Look with me in Psalm 1. It says, How blessed is the one who does not follow the advice of the wicked, or stand in the pathway of sinners, or sit in the assembly of scoffers. Instead, he finds pleasure in obeying the Lord's command. He meditates on his commands day and night. He's like a tree planted by flowing streams. It yields its fruit at the proper time, and its leaves never fall off. He succeeds in everything he attempts, but not so with the wicked. Instead, they are like wind-driven chaff. Verse 6 says, The way of the wicked ends in destruction. Blessed is the one who meditates day and night and hangs on every word of God. He's found God's presence. He's found the path. Another thing that this sermon does within us is that it forces us to rely on him. Because I'm sure a lot of us, if you're like myself, we come up short reading the to be attitudes. Okay, and it's not attitudes like attitu. It's like beatitudes came from the word beatus in Latin, which means like blessing. So this is not like the be attitudes. It's the beatus. Anyway, so anyway. Sorry, much more information than you ever wanted to know. It's okay. Um, so, most of us are kind of put off because we can't actually do those things, can we? I mean, can you imagine trying to put into action the Beatitudes? You're like, come on, man. Like, get poor in spirit. Like, mourn. Got to squeeze them tears out. Come on, meek. I got to do meek. I haven't used that word in five years. What does meek even mean? Right? You, you can't do those things. Be pure in heart. Purify heart. We can't do it. That's ridiculous. And I think that's Jesus' whole point. Because his whole point is that doing cannot get you there. It's got to go. It's, it becomes a matter of being, not doing. That's why in the next verses, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, he's like, there's no way any of you are getting into the kingdom of heaven. That would be like in this room saying, unless your knowledge of astrophysics exceeds that of the engineers of SpaceX, there is no way you are going to heaven. So we'd look around and be like, well, I guess we're all going to die. Right? That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying it's not enough to just do because the Pharisees were great doers, but they didn't have the internal component present. Okay? It's not about doing. It's about being. Or if let me, let me put it this way, it gets a little philosophical, but being precedes doing. Does that make sense? It means that what you do is a natural outworking of who you already are. It's not the other way around. Okay? So let me say it this way. Being is essential. 
and doing is consequential. Okay? So Jesus is saying, he's like, you be with God and the doings take care of themselves. That's all you be with God, the doings work themselves out. Okay? Now, I know that's a scary thought for most of us because we really can't control being, can we? We can control doing, like I can control actions, that's fine. That's in the realm of authority, right? But controlling who I am, that's, that's different. Those of you who remember the movie Gladiator with Russell Crowe and Joaquin Phoenix, uh, Joaquin Phoenix plays Commodus, okay? And he's, there's a scene where Commodus comes before his father, Marcus Aurelius, and he's pouring out his heart. And he's like, I remember when you wrote to me once listing the four chief virtues, wisdom and, and justice and fortitude and temperance. And as I read through that list, I knew that I had none of them. And then he tries to convince his father, but, but I have other virtues, father. I've got ambition and drive and resourcefulness. He's like, but none of my virtues were on your list. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of us find ourselves in that same position when we read it to Beatitudes, where it's like, none of my virtues are on your list. But what that does inside is, because I know I read it to Beatitudes, and I'm like, that's not me. That's not me. And so what that does inside me is it gets me to a point where the only thing I can do is raise up my hands to God and say, I can't do this. If that's the requirements to enter the kingdom of God, I am not fit for your kingdom. I'll just say it. But the only way that I can get into your kingdom is if you come inside me and change me from the inside out. You have to change my being because I can't do this. And praise be to God forever and ever because that's exactly what he does. He comes inside and transforms us at a molecular level, at a being level. The only way we enter into his kingdom is by falling wholeheartedly on the arms of Jesus and relying on him to get us there. So what can I do? Or more succinctly, what, what can we do? And I really think there's only one answer that we can do is that we can follow Jesus and we can join his kingdom and we can join the church. Look with me at Matthew chapter four, verse 21 and 22. It says, going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat with their father, Zebedee, mending their nets. And he called them and they immediately left the boat and their father, and followed him. It's no coincidence that right before the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus calling his disciples forward. Okay? Because his call to follow him goes out just as loud and long and deep, whether you have been following Christ for five seconds over the course of this message, or whether you've been following Christ for five decades. The call is the same, follow me. Okay? And that's hard because that means we have to leave our nets, we have to leave our boats, leave our relationships, and drop it all and come to Jesus. Because he's saying, you, don't, you won't need that boat. You won't need those nets. You can't bring that with you. Sorry, there's no outside food or drinks in my kingdom. I provide everything. 
it's going to be a totally new kingdom because the, what you're going to bring inside is just stuff from the upside down. And we're not going there. This is a totally new kingdom. Follow me. And when I say join the church, I'm not talking about walking down an aisle and signing a membership card. I'm talking about mentally joining the church. Because when you take on the name of Christian, as you go out into the city, into your workplaces, and as people identify you with Christians, you are, they are assuming that you are not carrying the value systems of this world, that you are carrying Christ's values. And let me just say, that's not an easy thing to do. Because we come in with our constructs too. We come in of this is how the world works and needs to work and this is my value system. But we have to drop those value systems and cling wholeheartedly onto the values of Christ. But here's the hard part. That might mean we get chewed up and spit out by the systems of this world. Jesus lived these values and he lived them out through and through and that's a whole other message on how Jesus lived out the the Beatitudes in the rest of his life. But Jesus lived this out through and through and it led him to a cross where he was crucified. But in God's kingdom, he has been given a name that is above every name and he will sit on his father's throne forever and ever and ever. God's kingdom is coming and his message of those who are on the bottom when this world flips upside down, guess who's on top? So I invite you, church, follow Jesus. Take on his values. Understand that his blessing is in his presence and join us as a church as we seek to follow him, as we seek to follow Jesus in his great wake. Will you pray with me? God, we want to give you this time. And God, we know, we know that we can't do this. And that whatever happens, it's got to be of you. For it is not of us if our doing can't get us anywhere and that our being with you comes straight by by the actions of your Holy Spirit. And I pray for those who are in this church this morning. I pray whether they have been following Jesus from the outskirts, following Jesus from a distance, that they will see that as they drop the world's value systems, they will see the monster that it really is, the corruption held within it, and that they will cling wholeheartedly to your values. They will cling and that they will be in your presence, that they will walk in your ways. I pray for this congregation that those, that we will walk in your word all the days of our lives. I pray, God, that when we leave this room, that we will leave different than when we came in, that your word would change us from the inside out, and that we will look to you the high God and high King, high prophet and God with us who is enthroned above all things. We love you and we give you this time. May you be glorified in all that we say, in all that we think, in all that we do. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.